the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Wall Street Journal editorial board opining, you can't close a modern economy for months or however long it takes to control the virus spread and not have thought about how to keep companies and individuals liquid and solvent. This, of course, was the topic of some of the Q&A between President Trump and the D.C. press corps yesterday during the coronavirus task force briefing and update the new guidelines being promulgated at the uh, behest of the advice and counsel the president received from the infectious disease experts at CDC. And uh, President Trump was asked about the market after the Dow cratered 3,000 points yesterday. Good grief. He had this to say. Best thing I can do for the stock market is we have to get through this crisis. That's what I can do. That's the best thing we can do. That's what I think about. Uh, once, uh, Once this virus is gone, Uh, I think you're going to have a stock market like nobody's ever seen before. He was also asked about, you know, what eventually are bailouts of particular industries, most notably the airlines. As far as the airlines are concerned, the airlines, we're going to uh, back the airlines 100 percent. It's not their fault. Uh, It's nobody's fault unless you go to the original source. But it's nobody's fault. And uh, we're going to be in a, a position to help the airlines very much. We've told the airlines we're going to help them. Well, the airlines very much want very uh, a lot of help, and they're being specific. Fifty billion dollars is what they uh, uh, advanced yesterday. But yes, right. Of course, every other industry is going to queue up, including casinos. Tom Cotton, uh, senator from Arkansas, addressed that in part with Neil Cavuto uh, yesterday, talking about the uh, pending, essentially American worker aid package that it's moving its way through Congress. So one version passed the House. The Senate's working on what the House sent, but there are going to be some changes. Yeah, Neil, I think the relief needs to be focused directly on affected workers and their families. That's one reason why I think the House bill shouldn't pass the Senate as written. It doesn't go far enough and it doesn't go fast enough. We have systems in place like the unemployment insurance system that can get checks out to affected workers immediately. We can treat them as if they're unemployed, if they've got the virus or they've been quarantined or their business has been furloughed, either at the decision of local authorities with so many restaurants and bars or the business owner, or for that matter, if they're like so many Arkansans today, having to stay home from work because their child's school has closed. We need to focus on getting cash and the equivalent of cash into the hands of those workers and their families so they can buy groceries and pay the bills for the short duration that the most intense phase of this crisis will likely last in the coming weeks. So that's on the worker side. On the employer side, the Wall Street Journal is recommending that the Fed is best placed for the role of stopping a liquidity panic and allowing that to become a solvency crash, suggesting that under Section 13.3 of its authority, the Fed can 
be the facility that could lend to companies hit by the economic shutdown, not merely banks and financial institutions, but all those other sectors we just described. Is that the best way to go? We'll put that to our friend Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So what about uh, that, what Tom Cotton said on the uh, employee side, effectively, and what the Wall Street Journal editorial board is recommending on the employer side? I'm in qualified for this. And the reason I say qualified is that the Federal Reserve and monetary policy for 30 years has been very, very reactionary. And every little thing that's happened, they've lowered rates, um, tried to improve lending, and then never really taken the punch ball back when the situation cleared itself. This is a real thing. Now, whether you argue that the enemy we're fighting this virus is as serious as we think it is. That is so far beyond the point now that it's forgotten. The point now is a, a real live economic lockup. Last night, early in the evening, the stock futures were up 5%, limit up, and then all of a sudden, the yeah. things we're talking about, there's some talk of funding pressures, the dollar rallies, and the stock market goes to negative on the day. So obviously to see 5% swings in the overnight session is boggling to me. But is it the right thing to do? Yeah, I think it's probably the right thing to do at this point in time. Going back to a macro view, what sort of medium to long-term economic damage are we doing or are we going to experience from the combination of the virus and our response to it? You know, assuming that it goes on at least before we get to downside of that flattened curve, say that's a couple of months away. I think that the medium-term damage is going to be relatively severe. There's a couple different factors, though, that, that have to be considered. And first, and this is very, very minor, how consumption is pulled forward into those things. I mean, we've seen people spending a tremendous amount of money to build inventory in preparation for what, was, for what happens next. So that's a, a tiny little bit of a good sign for retail. And then the obvious story is the big negative impact. And then the other side of it, which is the positive, is the government, all the things we've been talking about, the government throwing helicopter money at everything, just pumping it into the system to see where it lands. And medium term to long term, in terms of uh, beginning to recover, are we looking at 12 months from now, 24 months, 36 months? Nine months. I think it's quicker than that. I think everything happens quicker now, including like stock market corrections. Think about a stock market correction that happened 25 years ago where people had to like call their broker and figure out ways to get out of things. And now everybody just presses a button. So I think the the time for everything to to adjust is quicker than it's ever been before. And remember, a lot of the adjustment, too, is just going to be a psychological adjustment of the consumer, thinking that, okay, I can go out again. I'm safe. Everything's fine. So I think in this summer, we're going to start to see a, you know, a celebratory feel. And from the economic impact of it, I think by the time the summer's almost over into the fall, we're probably doing fine. One piece in the Wall Street Journal by a CEO of Nomadic Learning suggests that the traditional office was already fading into obsolescence. The coronavirus pandemic radically sped up the timeline. The new era of how we work will be people scheduling their work lives around their personal lives, not the other way around. We've seen a lot of these sorts of stresses before, and the only one thing in the past that's changed the way we do things was 9-11. Like you can even look at the Great Recession of 2007 and 8 and say to yourself, well, yes, it changed the, the way we live, but only for a short time. Will this change things? Yeah, I do think it'll change things, at least for a while. To put something in perspective, though, too, in 1987, I was on spring break in Florida, and I remember the local news station that we were watching show some national health experts were talking about the AIDS epidemic, and they, they were talking about spring break and all the people going on spring break, and I swear to God, they said it is estimated by whatever national health organization that one out of five people here at spring break has the AIDS virus. The problem is, is that at the beginning of these things, we barely know anything about it. So as we learn a little more about COVID and we learn, I learned a little more about AIDS, 
these things faded. I do, however, think it's going to change things minor. I think that this is the biggest reaction to something I've seen in a lifetime, so I think it probably will change a little bit of the way we do things. Uh, also, uh, the, the, uh, the business era. Uh, Andy Kessler, again, writing in the journal the other day, talking about maybe we're going to see less companies uh, go public or more go private and less subject to the vagaries of the public market, use venture capital and private equity you know, as cheap debt to keep companies, to keep your company private longer, for one example, as well as new sectors emerge where maybe big tech recedes and we are more in an era of biotech and healthcare and the intersection of healthcare and technology. That part I don't believe. When you ask if it's going to change our behavior on a, on a personal level, uh, you know, like a, a, the people, I say yes. But corporations, I can't really see that happening in any sort of big, big way. And keep in mind that I haven't put a ton of thought in that, too. That's the first someone's kind of thrown that at me. But it doesn't seem to me that at the corporate level, things like that are going to change all that much. So I'm, I'm not on that. You're sort of handicapping. I mean, the circuit breakers notwithstanding, are we going to see the markets uh, continue to get hammered until we see a decrease in, in cases? Is that basically the, the dynamic we're in? So funny. I heard a bunch of people talking on TV saying they're like, we need an absolutely great headline, like a vaccine or a cure to, to make the markets go higher. And I don't agree with that at all. I think if we institute this shutdown. And right now the markets have priced in a basically an economic lockup over the next couple of weeks. But if in two weeks, uh, two weeks time, three weeks time, we start to see a dramatic slow or the flattening of the curve that what they wanted of the disease, I think we can easily start to price in a brighter future and relatively quickly. Um, it's so funny is that these headlines that people are looking for that are going to be a great headline, it's it, sometimes it's just a, it's a perception of how we feel and how the market feels right at the time. So yesterday was you know the first clinical trial testing of a COVID um, vaccine. The market kind of ignore that because they know that it, it takes a long time to get the necessary approvals for that thing. But if, if all of a sudden we had bottomed and the cases started to look a little better and that headline came out, then everyone would be saying, wow, what a fabulous headline. Let's buy the stock market. So I think it's a matter of the next couple of weeks. I've thought the entire time, and I've said this in tedium, is that I think mid-April is is like a swinging point for this whole thing, and I'm you know because I'm hoping obviously that at, at like regular flus and colds, sunlight and fresh air obviously has a negative effect on it. How, how worried are you about the integrity of the financial system, uh, particularly as the Fed continues to move towards negative interest rates? I'm definitely worried. I'm not an end of the world guy on that sort of thing too. I think that you know the, the Fed has deep pockets. Do I think they've they've used them irresponsibly in the past? Yes. So I think it's a time to use them right now. Yes, also, this is the kind of thing that uh, that monetary policy was really made for. It's unfortunate that they use it for just about everything. Everything the Fed looks at to them looks like a situation for them to have liquidity. Um, am I worried about it? Yeah, sure. At some point in time, it's not going to work. I just I have a hard time feeling, thinking that this is that time. Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Money! This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Picking up on our conversation with uh, Jim Urio. A second briefing today, Tuesday morning, the president and the rest of the coronavirus task force members, at least the principals, tackling uh, new testing information as well as new 
economic backstopping information. Steve Mnuchin did that, Treasury Secretary, before he went back to the Hill to confer with senators about a package being developed in the Senate, flying off, building upon the package that was passed by the House last Friday. Let's start with the testing and what President Trump announced in conjunction with states. All states can now authorize tests developed and used within their borders in addition uh, to the FDA. So uh, the states are very much involved. They have been involved from the beginning. In addition to that, again, on the public health side, President announcing expansion of uh, of, uh, Medicare, uh, the telehealth, Uh, accessing uh, under Medicare. Medicare patients can now visit any doctor by phone or video conference at no additional cost, including with commonly used services like FaceTime and Skype, a historic breakthrough. This has not been done before either. So that's good. Waiving fees, waiving regulations to encourage accessing and conferencing with medical health professionals. Uh, that's good. In addition to that, you had uh, Dr. Deborah Burks talk a little bit about the testing as well. The testing that's been distributed, as was described by the Assistant Secretary of HHS at yesterday's briefing, and uh, sending a message too that uh, uh, the facilities that have the test kits, if you will, should be proactive, should be pushing out rather than waiting for orders in. You all are signaling a much more aggressive posture uh, toward containment mitigation now. Uh, And many states have been very aggressive. But there is a small number of states that has not, uh, have not issued public guidance to their residents. Is it important for the success of the effort that 100% of the states uh, be forward-leaning on this? And uh, if so, Mr. President, what would be your message to those states that have not? Okay. So that's why the vice president and the president yesterday issued those critical guidelines. As I said this morning on Fox and Friends, you can look at them as guidelines, you can look at them as requirements, and you can look at them as the president asking every American and every state to follow those. That's why we put them out at the federal level. We wanted to make sure every American knew what they could do today to change the course of this epidemic. I think it's empowering. I think it says all of us have a social responsibility um, to each other, and that's why we believe that every mayor and every governor should be instituting these guidelines that came from the White House and the President of the United States. And with respect to those guidelines, Tony Fauci, again, the CDC's infectious disease point person, was asked about, uh, okay, so 15-day guidelines, then there's a reassessment. When will we know if the guidelines are working, if people are following them and they're having a material impact in, uh, at minimum, slowing the anticipated increase in the number of cases? And Fauci responded. When is, when is the soonest that we'll know that these new guidelines are actually bending the curve or actually working? Uh, and is there a point in time where you... You know, in the next couple of weeks where you'll be able to tell the president more draconian measures are needed. Well, okay. so what's happening? I mean, if you look as a metaphor, it's kind of like a race against the virus. If left to its own devices, we'll do this and us trying to somehow blunt that. Now, you could see the virus going up and up and your effect, your, your work, what you're trying to do may actually be having an effect But you may not see it because it'll still be going up. And as you're trying to 
uh, implement your, your, your interference with the virus, you may not realize that you're actually interfering. And you'll say, wait a minute, it's still going up. What's going on? You've done nothing. But you don't know whether it would do this versus that. Well, right. And so you know, the, the rate of increase, much less than a decrease. Obviously, if you see a decrease, you see falling numbers, then um, that's obvious. The, the speed of the increase may be a little bit more difficult to decipher, although you do have the modeling and you have this testing going on. and You're going to have those real world test results inform the modeling that's being done to hopefully provide as accurate a picture as possible. And now, the president, going back to President Trump, he also talked about uh, a couple of other matters, including, in addition to testing, uh, for example, since bars and restaurants are shut down in so many major cities, uh, the important role that uh, fast food, his favorite place, place is, uh, fast food joints have in uh, you know, feeding people like President Trump, like me. Earlier this morning, I spoke with executives from America's fast food industry, Wendy's, McDonald's, uh, all of the, uh, the big ones, uh, Burger King, uh, and they were great. Uh, we're talking about uh, the pickups in light of yesterday's guidance you heard uh, to avoid eating or drinking at bars, restaurants, or public food courts. We discussed the important role that the drive-through pickup and delivery service can Yes, the important role that the pickup uh, drive-through will play, as it's always played in the lives of some people who don't cook like me. Uh, In addition to that, you had, as I mentioned at the outset, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin talk about a couple of moves that are being done, both in terms of uh, monetary policy as well as fiscal policy. Uh, Mnuchin uh, talking about, uh, on the fiscal side, the employee stimulus, the worker stimulus, getting cash in the hands of Americans post-haste. When you say a stimulus package for American workers, do you mean direct payments to Americans, or are you talking about a payroll tax holiday? Um, Although the president likes the idea of the payroll tax holiday, I will tell you what we've heard from many people, and the president has said we can consider this. The payroll tax holiday would get people money over the next six to eight months. We're looking at sending checks to Americans immediately. And what we've heard from hardworking Americans, many companies have now shut down, whether it's bars or restaurants, Americans need cash now, and the president wants to get cash now. And I mean now in the next two weeks. How much? Uh, I will be previewing that with the Republicans. There's some numbers out there. They may be a little bit bigger than what's in the press. He also talked about, did Secretary Mnuchin, uh, on uh, income tax filing deferment, a million dollars individually. So the reason that's so high is capture pass-through, S-corps, and $10 million at the corporate level. You can defer as much uh, as those amounts in terms of taxable income for up to 90 days with no interest or penalties. Uh, That's something else they're doing. In addition to that, the Treasury is providing uh, $10 billion from a pool of money it retains called the Exchange Stabilization Fund to the Fed to protect it from taking credit losses on loans it's going to extend. Uh, The commercial paper market has been under considerable strain in recent days. As businesses and households face greater uncertainty by eliminating much of the risk that eligible issuers will not be able to repay investors by rolling over their maturing commercial paper obligations, this facility should encourage investors to once again engage in term lending in the commercial paper market. This special credit facility is a version of uh, the one that was deployed in response to the 2008 financial crisis to purchase commercial paper from issuers 
that are having a difficult time finding buyers on the open market after securing permission from the Treasury Department. So those are some multiple prongs of what is being done on the economic health side, in addition to Mnuchin restating the president's commitment to backstop the airlines, who, uh, at least as reporting this morning, were uh, looking for $50 billion. Uh, We'll uh, continue to discuss this throughout the show. We'll be back. Take it easy. Take it easy. Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Dr. Deborah Burks had a couple of important things to say at the uh, coronavirus task force briefing on Monday afternoon. Uh, she uh, really focused in on a, a core group that needs to listen very closely. Well, two core groups that listen need to listen very closely to what uh, she and Dr. Tony Fauci and uh, the team are recommending but for different reasons. First, those who are sick. We really want to focus on if you are sick, no matter who you are, please stay home. If someone in your household is diagnosed with this virus, the entire household should quarantine in the house to prevent spread of the virus to others. The reason we're taking these strong and bold steps is because we know there is virus spread before you develop symptoms. And then we know that there's a large group, we don't know the precise percent yet, that actually is asymptomatic or has such mild cases that they continue to spread the virus. If your children are sick, please keep them home. And uh, speaking of your children, if your children are millennials, Dr. Burke says uh, they're part of the group that's going to make or break us when it comes to combating the spread of this virus. I want to speak particularly to our largest generation now, our millennials. I have the mom of two wonderful millennial young women who are bright and hardworking, and I will tell you what I told to them. They are the core group that will stop this virus. They are the group that communicates successfully, independent of picking up a phone. They intuitively know how to contact each other without being in large social gatherings. We're asking all of them to hold their gatherings to under 10 people, not just in bars and restaurants, but in homes. We really want people to be separated at this time. And if everyone listens to what uh, Dr. Burks and the other experts have to say, then we can avoid a lot of the anxiety over medical supplies from hospital beds to ventilators to masks. And if everybody in America does what we ask for over the next 15 days, we will see a dramatic difference and we won't have to worry about the ventilators and we won't have to worry about the ICU beds because we won't have our elderly and our people at the greatest risk having to be hospitalized. For more on this, please to be joined by Chelsea Boyd, who's a research associate in harm reduction with R Street, former AIDS researcher with the District of Columbia Center, and uh, and, uh, has a master's degree in epidemiology. Chelsea, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. Do you uh, concur with what uh, Dr. Burks and uh, Dr. Fauci, for that matter, had to say yesterday at that briefing? I do. I think that really we we need to trust our public health system at this point. And I know that's difficult given um, how we've felt like a lot of I know a lot of people feel like there were mistakes made and there were mistakes made early on in this outbreak. And also that we've had a lot of epidemic scares, for lack of a better term, um, in the last few years where it seems like that word just gets used an awful lot. Um, But really, the key thing about public health in an emergency is that we have to trust the leaders and we need to listen to what they're saying. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's people look at this as laymen look at this and say, I mean, we still have a relatively uh, low amount of cases. We have less than 100 deaths from coronavirus in this country of 330 million people. And I don't want to be cavalier about those individuals, but I mean, just in terms of the grand scope of this. Uh, and they're having a hard time reconciling how those numbers uh, legitimize a, uh, you know, a shutdown of San Francisco and Pennsylvania and partial shutdowns of Chicago and D.C. Uh, what's the response to that? Yeah, um, I think it is hard to rationalize that um, because, again, you don't see it. And really, the way that I'm thinking about it is that we want this to be over as fast as possible. Uh, the faster we can contain it, the faster we can go back to living our lives than the way that they were prior to uh, coronavirus. And that is an easy thing to say as someone who can work from home. Um, but it really is important, particularly in places where there's a lot of population density. That doesn't mean that if you live in a more rural location or a smaller town, you shouldn't be taking precautions. That just means that city dwellers are at a higher risk because we're constantly surrounded by people. Uh, when we come back with Chelsea Boyd, I want to talk about the healthcare infrastructure that we had going into the coronavirus and what uh, changes may come out of how we've dealt with this pandemic. More with Chelsea Boyd, research associate in harm reduction with R Street, right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Chelsea Boyd, research associate in harm reduction with R Street, former AIDS researcher with the District of Columbia Center. She is a uh, the holder of a master's degree in epidemiology as well. It's worth noting. Chelsea, thinking about the healthcare infrastructure, President Trump sort of made reference to it in the briefing on Monday afternoon. The Trump administration inherited a system. We have a system that just isn't set up for sort of the uh, mass testing on the, the uh, turn of a dime to, to deal with a p- pandemic like this of, that, that is uh, novel. That's just not the way our system is set up in a free society that's uh, a federalist governance model. And I wonder if we think about how we're responding to this now and how the healthcare infrastructure in this country may change as a result of this experience. Of course. I think that we really need to discuss that. And that's something that 
could be great that comes out of this is a really um, holistic discussion about what we need to do to be more prepared as a healthcare system and also as a way to just protect the overall health of our citizens. I do think, though, as much as we say that we're not set up to test at this capacity, and that is very true, part of it, too, is really just a limitation of science, is that mm. the, the test requires what's called a PCR test, and traditionally those take six to eight hours to process, and then machine capacity is limited. It takes a specialized piece of equipment that ends up heating the samples and then cooling them in a specific order so that they can amplify the viral genome and then quantify it. With some of our other diseases out in the, that spread widely, so for example, HIV, we have oral tests, we have quick tests that you can do in a lab at the hospital or things that you can do at home, but we don't have that for coronavirus right now. And eventually we may, we may not, but it's just, it's a process, it's a test that takes a skilled individual and a piece of equipment that a lot of places don't have. So I think, again, that is a, there's certainly questions of how can we prepare better for the next epidemic where we can reroute resources so that we can scale up our testing capacity faster, but we also have to work within the confines of what we have available to us from a scientific standpoint. Right, and and, and you know, so much emphasis has been put on a, you know, comparing and contrasting countries, how many tests they're doing on a daily basis and this and that. Um, but what, what we heard from South Korea or about South Korea is that, uh, yes, they were doing 10,000 tests a day, but they had a false positive rate that was extremely high. Um, you know, a false positive for, yes, a respiratory illness, but not specifically coronavirus. And so the quality of the testing and the the, uh, the professional administering the test, as you were sort of describing, you know, that matters, too. So we, we can't just look at the sort of raw input numbers and we have to look at the quality of the testing, the quality of the professionals administering the test, the quality of the analysis. And with something that is novel, even though this is, uh, you know, one of a family of viruses, um, that's not something that you can just uh, flip a switch and have at the ready. Exactly. And so, so as we as we think about that um, on a go forward basis too, what about uh, the other component parts of healthcare infrastructure? Uh, you saw on Friday again another one of these briefings that you had representatives from the private sector from the, a, a range of. Uh, areas within the the larger healthcare sector. So you had individuals representing pharmacies. You had individuals representing home healthcare services. You had individuals representing sort of the the uh, big pharma R and D outfits. Um, you know how, how do how how should all of those pieces fit together perhaps differently than they do now, or uh, be leaned on differently than they are now? I think that from what I can tell, there's at least a good conversation going on about how public-private partnerships can be set up. Um, I'm not sure in what capacity you could have a drive-through testing site in every Walmart or every Target. Um, that is, it's an undertaking. Again, it may be possible, um, but it, it's, an, it's an undertaking, and it's certainly something that both the companies would have to agree with and we would have to figure out how to set up. Um, but I think really what that speaks to the most is that 
healthcare is more than just the hospital. Healthcare is more than just the doctors and the nurses that we think of when we go in to see our primary care physicians. And we have to realize that people are receiving healthcare from a lot of different places that are a lot more um, invisible than if you go to the ER. And I think one of the really big things about this that is being said but maybe not emphasized enough is to con communicate with your healthcare providers before you even come in for the test. And I think this will be an opportunity for us to learn how to use, utilize healthcare resources in the best way possible. That may be an instance of people learning to rely less on emergency services and more on their primary care physicians. Uh, it may mean using telehealth more, but it's going to be a really, it could be a very productive learning process for the American public as well as for policymakers. And uh, you know we're always we always have the tendency to borrow a, 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 to, a metaphor, to use a metaphor comparing to war, but to fight the last war. And I wonder, uh, you were an AIDS researcher, uh, uh, Dr. Deborah Burks also was, and we think about uh, how long it took to come up with uh, uh, a test for AIDS, how long it t took to come up with a, a treatment for AIDS patients. And I wonder if uh, you know, th that example plus the other viral outbreaks we've dealt with over the last, say, 20 years, if we're still uh, approaching these as like the way we approach war, fighting the last war rather than uh, taking lessons learned from previous wars, to continue this metaphor, and, uh, and adjusting accordingly, prospectively. I think that's really a struggle that we have in even real war or non-metaphorical war. Yes, no, right, for sure. We tend to look forward to what we have next coming coming at us and not study the past. As an epidemiologist, that's pretty much all that we did in school was look at past outbreaks and uh, see how those things work together. But just like non-metaphorical war, every outbreak is different and every virus is different. I think one of the biggest things is that we just need to know that we're going to keep seeing emerging viral infections. Um, and we also need to keep an eye towards the ones that are already out there. Some of the tropical diseases, particularly uh, if you see the effects of climate change, you could really see viral diseases like malaria, things like dengue fever, that are usually just confined to a tropical region spreading into other areas. And that can be just as detrimental to the populations as an outbreak like this. She is Chelsea Boyd, Research Associate in Harm Reduction with R Street, former AIDS researcher with the District of Columbia Center, and uh, she is the holder of a master's degree in epidemiology, epidemiologist. Chelsea Boyd, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Look, I am listening to the experts, the infectious disease experts, the epidemiologists, of course, but I'm tempering that with uh, best practices from um, other cultural commentators uh, like George Carlin. Because that's what Americans do now. They're always willing to trade away a little of their freedom in exchange for the feeling, the illusion of security. What we have now is a completely neurotic population obsessed with security and safety and crime and drugs and cleanliness and hygiene and germs. There's another thing, germs. Where did this sudden fear of germs come from? 
in this country. Have you noticed this? The media constantly running stories about all the latest infections, salmonella, E. coli, hantavirus, bird flu, and, and Americans are, they panic easily, so now everybody's running around scrubbing this and spraying that and overcooking their food and repeatedly washing their hands, trying to avoid all contact with germs. It's ridiculous and it goes to ridiculous lengths in prisons before they give you a lethal injection they swab your arm with alcohol <laughs> it's true you're going to hell but we don't want you to get sick yeah uh, george carlin also with some suggestion on uh, you know almost like an immunologist uh, on uh, how you uh, buttress your immune system spirit germs why these f***ing p***ies <laughs> you can't even get Point a decent anybody. hamburger anymore they cook their sh- out of everything now because everybody's afraid of food poisoning hey where's your sense of adventure take a f-ing chance will you besides what do you think you have an immune system for it's for killing germs but it needs practice it needs germs to practice on so so listen so listen If you kill all the germs around you and live a completely sterile life, then when germs do come along, you're not going to be prepared. And never mind ordinary germs, what are you going to do when some super virus comes along that turns your vital organs into liquid I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to get sick, you're going to die, and you're going to deserve it because you're f***ing weak and you got a f***ing weak immune system. Uh, Okay, a little bit more empathetic collaboration. This is Mel Brooks, yeah, 92, 93-year-old Mel Brooks and his son Max Brooks with a, a special message on the topic. Hi, I'm Max Brooks. I'm 47 years old. This is my dad, Mel Brooks. Hi, Dad. He's 93. If I get the coronavirus, I'll probably be okay. But if I give it to him, he could give it to Carl Reiner, who could give it to Dick Van Dyke. And before I know it, I've wiped out a whole generation of comedic legends. When it comes to coronavirus, I have to think about who I can infect. And so should you. So practice social distancing. Avoid crowds, wash your hands, keep six feet away from people. And if you've got the option to stay home, just stay home. Do your part. Don't be a spreader. Right, Dad? I'm going. I'm going. Go home. And he's behind a glass door in his house is Mel Brooks, who looks great at 93, by the way. So a little bit of everybody, a little bit of Tony Fauci, a little bit of Deborah Burks, uh, and a little bit of George Carlin, and a little bit of Mel and Max Brooks. uh, Best practices. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. You can follow us at danproftshow.com, also at Dan Proft Show on Facebook and Twitter as well as at Dan Profton. You know, the media coverage of the coronavirus and the administration's response is uh, perhaps getting better. That seemed to be the indication that President Trump gave at his briefing on Monday afternoon, although there were certainly exceptions. There continue to be exceptions that are reflective of, frankly, shoddy, gotcha-style journalism, uh, stories that wouldn't have been reported, shouldn't have been reported, and all one needed to do to get to the truth was ask a relevant party, for example, and Trump made mention of this. 
the uh, criticism he received for referencing on Friday a website that was being developed with the support of Google engineers that uh, the, the, the press covered. There were multiple news stories suggesting that Google was completely unaware of what the president was talking about, that he was just sort of speaking off the cuff without uh, any uh, coordination with Google. Uh, president Trump turned the tables on the press corps with respect to that reporting. Uh, I want to thank the people at Google and Google Communications because, as you know, they uh, substantiated what I said on Friday. Uh, the head of Google, who's uh, a great gentleman, said uh, called us and he apologized. I don't know where the press got their fake news, but they got it someplace. But as you know, this is from Google. They put out a release and uh, you guys can figure it out yourselves and how that got out. And I'm sure you'll apologize. But uh, it would be great if we could really give the news correctly. It would be so, so wonderful. And uh, another example of this, uh, Tim Morrison with an op-ed in the Washington Post. He was Tim Morrison, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute now, former senior director uh, of counterproliferation and biodefense at the National Security Council, responding to the allegations by multiple officials of the Obama administration and uh, amplified by the Post that President Trump had dissolved the pandemic response office within the National Security Council. Tim Morrison, his op-ed, no, that didn't happen, and I was there. And, oh, by the way, John Bolton retweeting the Tim Morrison op-ed, tweeting this, reporting that alleges the Trump administration dissolved NSC offices related to our biodefense are both false and misleading. Listen to those who ran the effort. This, referring to the Morrison op-ed, is a must-read for anyone who values truth over politics in a time of crisis. For more on this topic, I can't think of anybody better. We're pleased to be joined again by Cheryl Atkinson, who is an investigative journalist and Emmy Award-winning host of Full Measure. Cheryl, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. What what about uh, some of that reporting, uh, things that just turned out to be wholly inaccurate, uh, the issue with Google and the website, the issue with the uh, biodefense concern within NSC? Well, unfortunately, in terms of us getting accurate information, there are entire news organizations and reporters within them whose goal is to politicize and attack President Trump, no matter what the news topic is. So some of that is the fallout from that. And to the extent that it keeps us from getting accurate information on a really, really important health issue, I think it's it's very damaging. I mean, the stuff that I would have done to verify the things like that that they misreported would prevent the misreporting, the basic steps that journalism requires before you go to print with something or go to press with something. These steps are just not even being taken in many instances. Well, that's I mean, what I think is shocking. Yeah, yeah the, the John Bolton thing. I mean, John Bolton was their cause celeb during the uh, impeachment proceeding. You couldn't call John Bolton and ask if this was true? Exactly. I mean, some of the mistakes that have been made as you say, require the simple act of actually looking at a piece of videotape you're reporting on or placing a call to an official to ask if something is true. And these basic steps that, I, as I say, are required of basic journalism aren't being conducted in some cases. Well, what's your overall assessment of the reporting here? I mean, there was some criticism, including by me, early on about the uh, the hyping of the coronavirus, too, and what you get on cable news, which is the scary chirons and the, you know, deadly virus and and all that stuff that uh, feeds the frenzy rather than uh, tries to um, elucidate the issue for the viewer. 
Well, we're getting a lot of information that at first at least didn't answer basic questions. So I've gone to CDC. I'm getting some answers to that. Some of these questions that I think a lot of Americans were asking but not hearing the answers to on the news. I'm trying to sort through the fatality numbers. I think there's a very important um, distinction to be made when these fatality numbers are being quoted. The death rate went down from something like 3% to 1.75% in a couple of days. And it's not because coronavirus became less fatal. It's because the universe of who they're looking at to calculate those numbers is growing and is going to continue to grow. And that could be giving a huge misimpression when it comes to who's most at risk of death, not to downplay or underplay the seriousness of this. And I, I think there's a lot of stuff the government knows that it hasn't publicized, such as modelings and projections. I think we should be digging for those as well. Right. But to make it, to oversimplify it, if you heard that the first person in the United States diagnosed with this disease died, that would be a 100% death rate if no one else had been tested. So your fatality rate would be 100% depending on how they're calculating. But if you learned that 99 people had it and didn't die but hadn't been tested, then you'd suddenly learn that the fatality rate goes to 1% instead of 100%. And then if you learned that 1,000 people will never know they had it because most people are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms, suddenly it's a tenth of 1%, the fatality rate. The disease is no more or less deadly. It's the calculation, and we haven't done a good job explaining that, as well as the fact that they have released the government numbers for the fatality rate for older people, which is large, something like 14% in some elderly age groups, but almost zero then in the United States and young people. There, as of yesterday, had been no reported deaths of anybody of coronavirus under age 40 and only one age 40 to 50. Doesn't mean it's not serious, doesn't mean it won't happen, but we should be asking about these numbers so that we can get an accurate picture of the remediation that we're taking and the risks we may take with an emergency vaccine and the medicines and the therapies, I think we need a complete picture and the press can do a better job at trying to get some of the stuff that's not being spoon fed to us. Right. And I, I mean, again, the data it changes uh, with each passing hour, of course, but you had the Surgeon General uh, a week before last make the point, uh, Dr. Jerome Adams make the point that the average age of, uh, of uh, fatality was 80 years old. The average age of hospitalization was 60 not again, not trying to minimize the threat, but just trying to provide contextual information so people can make sort of common sense assessments about their, well, just frankly, their level of anxiety before you even get into the uh, uh, advice and counsel, the guidelines that are being issued by, by the federal government, just sort of to keep your head about you. Well, and here's why it matters. Let's say you think there's a pretty high fatality rate because you're hearing an average and you have a child who's age eight, and there's an experimental vaccine that comes out that has some risk of side effects as all medicines. You give it to your kid because you don't want your kid to have, you know, to die of this um, disorder, of course, or this virus. But what if you knew that as of the time of you making that decision, there had been no deaths of children that age in the United States, and that there was no risk or very little risk of that, but maybe a slightly higher risk of an experimental vaccine. These are calculations you would want to know about before you take a blanket recommendation to try a new therapy or a new medicine that hasn't been tested in the way that most medicines and vaccines are because of the emergency nature of the development of it. So 
these are maybe sort of nuanced, but these are the kinds of things that I'm interested in and well, sure. into. It's, it's the idea of providing context and consequence in reporting, which is what good reporting is. So another example of this would be to, to, to ask about um, and then to report on the number of people who were infected, but then were treated and released or treated and clear tested negative. I mean, we in, in my home state of Illinois, we have about a, a 105 cases last I, I saw, but it's very rarely reported that more than two dozen of those cases, people have been uh, tested positive, been treated in one form or fashion, been been uh, found to be negative than after the treatment, hospitalization or otherwise. And so they shouldn't be considered part of that population anymore because they're not coronavirus positive. Yes. And as important, if not more important, according to the government, most people will never know they had it, will never get a test, will never get diagnosed because, again, their symptoms are so mild or non-existent. They're asymptomatic, especially young people. So suddenly it looks like instead of them saying, for example, out of 80,000 cases, 50,000 have recovered, there may have been really, you know, millions of cases with almost all of the millions recovered. We'll just never know because those people will never be tested. But according to the government, these carriers, invisible carriers of the virus who can sometimes spread it, most of them will never know it. Uh, when we come back with Cheryl Atkinson, I want to ask her about um, this write-up from a former news director, television news director, about how he would be running editorial board meetings, the kind of stories he would be looking for if he were still in the game. Get her reaction. More with investigative journalist, Emmy Award-winning host of Full Measure, Cheryl Atkinson, right up. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, President Trump at his briefing on Monday was asked sort of the typical question from the press corps that uh, that sort of riles me. But unfortunately, President Trump took the bait. It's, you know, grade yourself, rate yourself one to ten. How's the administration's response been? Does the buck stop with you? And on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your response to this crisis? I'd rate it a ten. I think we've done a great job. And it started with the fact that we kept a very highly infected country, despite all of the, even the professionals uh, saying, no, it's too early to do that. We were very, very early with respect to China, and we would have a whole different situation in this country if we didn't do that. I would rate it a a very, very, I would rate ourselves and, and the professionals. I think the professionals have done a fantastic job. As far as the testing, you heard the admiral. I think the, the testing that we've done, we, we really took over an obsolete system or uh, put it maybe in a different way, a system that wasn't meant to do anything like this. We took it over and we're doing something that's never been done in this country. Uh, more with Cheryl Ackes, an investigative journalist and Emmy Award winning host of Full Measure. Cheryl, that kind of question, I wish the president wouldn't respond the way he did. I wish he would just say, look, in terms of the professionals, the Tony Fauci's and the Deborah Burks of the world, they're a 10. They're doing everything they can within the bounds of what we know uh, in this space about infectious diseases and science. And, you know, 
I don't know. This isn't the time to make that sort of assessment. We're doing the best we can in the moment. I'm sure people will say there could have been things done differently. I'll look back. Maybe there'll be things done differently. But uh, we got a good team here, and we're doing everything we can and, and on behalf of the public health and economic health of the American people, and let's move on already. That, that seems to me like the question that's just cheap headline hunting. Yeah, or, you know, you and I have had the chance to think about how we'd answer. He answered off the cuff, but maybe he could have said, as much as you'd like to make this be about me, yes, the buck stops with me, but it's really not about my performance. It's about the performance of the people you see behind me, which he has kind of said that sort of thing. But yeah, but I agree. There's, there's, you know, reporters today, some of them assigned to cover this president, they get pats on the back and attention and notoriety if they make a headline, if there's a little back and forth, a question and answer, spicy as it may be, that traps the president or makes him look bad or something that can be quoted and passed around on social media. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of them are trying to do rather than get the information that we need to know. Um, I wanted to get your reaction to this uh, write-up. It was actually LinkedIn in his profile. Uh, Bill Shorey was a news director for a couple of decades in newsrooms on TV stations in uh, in Kentucky and Tennessee. And he, uh, his headline is, you know, sort of one of these cases where the headline tells you a lot, my own morning meeting be better than toilet paper stories. And he, uh, he goes on to say, (laughs) yeah, you know where this is going. He said, the first thing to understand is that the morning meeting, the editorial meeting, isn't just where you discuss which stories you're going to do or who's going to do them. It's where you talk about the kinds of stories you're going to do. It's a lot like a gathering of family around a dinner table, which where you get a chance to reinforce your values, your purpose, your long-term strategy, what you stand for. And he said, uh, the, the wisdom that I stole from friends along the way distilled my editorial guidance to this. Every story should make me smarter. Every story should make me laugh or cry. Every story should make the community better. And then he goes into each of those categories and what COVID-19 stories would look like the angles they would take if you were abiding his editorial guidance. I think that's great guidance. And, I've worked in some terrific newsrooms where we had meetings like that. I think I've been lucky because I don't think, you know, all of them are guided in the same way. But I agree. I mean, I call it value added when I'm trying to report something. Today, a lot of people want you to report something to validify that's how you feel about it. So I get asked a lot of times by people, why didn't you report on what President Trump did wrong? And my answer to that is on a certain topic. Everybody reported that. You simply want me to report it to make you think that I agree personally with something, but I'm not bringing any information to the table if I'm doing that. So value added is trying to find something in addition to reporting what's going on, which is part of your job, but also find stuff that maybe not everybody else is reporting. Answers are the questions people are asking, but they're watching the news and they're not finding them. So I, I think that is great advice from that news manager and it's good that they're doing that. And uh, when he, the, the one thing I like, oh, I don't know about the make me laugh or cry. It sounds like it sounds very sentimentalist, but um, but he, he persuaded me with his write up. It's not a time for ha ha funny, but what what this is really about is making me feel something. Emotion is what makes a story stick with people. There's already plenty of fear and sadness going around. So what emotion could people use right now? How about inspiration? Uh, on next door neighborhood Facebook groups, you can easily find people organizing volunteer efforts to deliver food and medicine. Find one of them and tell their story. So that's what he means about the, the sort of the laugh or cry in this context, which which I find yeah totally acceptable. Well, and it's not our job to add to that to 
present sort of a manipulated or false view of what's going on or to try to tell people how they ought to feel. But by the same token, we sometimes unintentionally do that by reporting superlatives, the worst, the most horrible, you know, the biggest and most serious X, Y, and Z. So that's why it's important to have that diversity in the reporting. And I think people turn on the news and if they start seeing red banners and they hear nothing but this serious talk, it can hype things up beyond what it deserves to be. And we have to be cognizant of doing that and making sure, you know, I went out yesterday. Um, I go to Taekwondo classes. They're still having classes. We're taking special measures, but everybody was normal. You know, things were closed in my community, but everybody was acting normal. There weren't people running in panic and, you know, to reflect only one side, like the missing toilet paper and the hospitals, that's important, but I think we should be careful not to overemphasize that to the exclusion of everything else. And, you know, and, and then let me take an example of what I thought was good reporting and from CNN, no less, uh, you know, not usually something I say, but they uh, there was a write up that uh, was done for the CNN website about uh, debunking myths about uh, testing. So, for example, there's this uh, thing going around that if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds without uh, without coughing, that means you're okay and you're not infected with coronavirus. Well, that's, you know, I mean, you know, it's one of those things, it's, it sounds silly, but it, but a lot of people were believing that. I've heard that from friends and they say, well, there's just no medical basis yeah. for that. And there were other myths that they went through. Drinking water will protect you from coronavirus. That's not true. Uh, if you have a runny nose, it's just a cold. If you have the coronavirus, you'll definitely, you'll, you'll automatically get pneumonia. So that sort of information that provides that context and value add that makes me smarter about this so that's good reporting. Absolutely. And I'll be writing in the near future about just some basic questions still that haven't been widely answered. People ask how long you should wash your hands. I've heard everything from two minutes to 20 seconds. What is CDC really recommending? Um, incubation period, all those kinds of things. I've posed those questions to CDC. I've gotten some answers. And again, like you say, those are, in my case, not really dispelling myths as much as answering some simple basic questions that haven't been, I don't think, widely reported in a way people can find them. That's really important, too. She is Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist and Emmy Award-winning host of Full Measure. Cheryl, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. So President Trump at his uh, briefing yesterday afternoon, uh, promulgating new federal guidelines with respect to combating the spread of the coronavirus. And um, here are the top lines of those new guidelines. My administration is recommending that all Americans, including the young and healthy, work to engage 
in schooling from home when possible, avoid gathering in groups of more than 10 people, avoid discretionary travel, and avoid eating and drinking at bars, restaurants, and public food courts. If everyone makes this uh, change or these critical changes and sacrifices now, we will rally together as one nation and we will defeat the virus. And that's what uh, the CDC's infectious disease point man, Dr. Tony Fauci, said as well, sort of echoing the president's statement, putting an exclamation point on it, essentially do what we say for 15 days and uh, hopefully you won't we won't have to be in these sort of partial shutdown postures around the country subsequently. The guidelines, when you look at them carefully, I believe if the people in the United States take them seriously because they were based on some rather serious consideration back and forth, some may look at them and say they're going to be really inconvenient for people. Some will look and say, well, maybe we've gone a little bit too far. They were well thought out. And the thing that I I want to reemphasize, and I'll say it over and over again, when you're dealing with an emerging infectious diseases outbreak, you are always behind where you think you are if you think that today reflects where you really are. For more on this, as well as uh, all of this occurring against the backdrop of an election year in presidential politics, we're pleased to be joined again by Matthew Cottonetti, founding editor at the Free Beacon and resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Do you think uh, that uh, President Trump uh, from Friday to yesterday uh, starting to get uh, the Trump administration starting to get a better handle on this uh, in part and just presenting a much better public face in large measure with the uh, CEOs along with the health experts on Friday and then again the uh, relevant public health personnel yesterday? That's right. I, I think the Trump administration's response has been ramping up uh, perhaps a little bit slowly at first, but now it's accelerating. It's uh, been dependent on the um, changing modeling that some of the public health officials are receiving. And I think in particular, it's in between uh, uh, over the weekend with the latest uh, announcements coming yesterday, it was this latest model that could show, you know, significant death if nothing is done to, to control the outbreak. Right. Now, and it's it's predicated on this these, this modeling. And so that's, you know, that's what we have to go on. But the good news from yesterday is that there is going to be a lot more testing coming online. The results coming online this week, uh, the Assistant Secretary of HHS saying a million uh, testing kits available nationally with uh, 1.9 by week's end, 1.9 million. And so we should start to get a better handle on um, on the the scope of this at present, and uh, that should inform the model so we've got some more real-world data that can really give us a sense of magnitude. That's right. I mean, with these outbreaks, uh, it's better to kind of uh, overreact early uh, in order to slow down the spread of the virus. And so uh, the more we take uh, to social distance and um, to self-quarantine or isolate, if one is feeling sick, um, that will change the model. And and of course, that will mean fewer deaths and fewer infections. And it is interesting uh, with respect to Trump's initial response to uh, this as it became known. Uh, that, again, directionally right for the people who criticized him, for example, the travel restriction on uh, the Chinese at the end of January, 
many of those people are now lording over towns that are shut down in total, uh, like San Francisco. States shut down in total, like Pennsylvania, um, and and partial shutdowns in places like Chicago and D.C. and elsewhere, too. Yeah, I mean, one always has to kind of look at uh, President Trump's uh, actions as, uh, different from, as distinct from his words. And his actions um, since the beginning of the year have been entirely appropriate. Um, and uh, especially in terms of um, leading on the, on the travel bans issues. I'd say for maybe for the first month or so, uh, his words kind of sent a mixed message, uh, but then he's quickly kind of put them both in sync now, and so you have a kind of a unified um, uh, message coming from the federal government, which uh, is definitely appreciated, I think. Uh, when we come back with Matthew Kennedy, I want to talk about another virus that uh, we have not quelled yet. Uh, this is a philosophical one. It's called socialism. More with Matthew Kennedy, founding editor of Free Beacon, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Matthew Conetti, founding editor of The Free Beacon, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Matthew, you write about um, the fight against socialism at freebeacon.com and the fact that it ain't over just because the Menshevik is going to be the nominee and not the Bolshevik. Uh, the uh, your your concern about uh, about socialism, even uh, against the backdrop of the rejection of Bernie Sanders's candidacy. Right. Well, I think we have three reasons to continue to worry about socialism, and the first is Bernie may not have won the nomination, but he has driven the Democratic Party to the left, and we see that just in recent days with Joe Biden adopting a version of Sanders's uh, free um, college uh, proposal and a, another version of Elizabeth Warren's uh, bankruptcy proposal. So Biden has definitely moved left far beyond where he stood as vice president. Um, another reason is there's a developing infrastructure of uh, socialism in this country. Um, you know, whether it's parties like the Working Families Party or whether it's the Democratic Socialists of America, there's a lot of online media and also some print media that is uh, explicitly socialist, and these institutions are affecting what we call the mainstream media as well. You can kind of see the mainstream media taking on much more left-wing bent when you look at something like the 1619 project of the New York Times, for example, say, saying that America was founded on the basis of slavery. And then finally, um, we can't ignore the fact that Bernie is drawing heavily from young people, uh, in particular um, Asian voters and uh, Hispanic voters. Um, and these groups are the two fastest-growing groups uh, in, in the country. To that point about uh, Bernie's uh, cachet with younger people, also younger people who themselves are candidates for office, whether they're successful the first time out or not, those that tend to be uh, under 40 and running in Democrat primaries, and we've seen this in, in my hometown of Chicago for things like the Chicago City Council, uh, tend to be socialists, and some of them, a self-avowed socialist the same way Bernie Sanders is. Right. And even if they lose, you know, they're young, so they can come back. And, you know, uh, while socialism at the national level right now uh, doesn't have much of a future, 
it can cause real damage at the uh, municipal level. I mean, you just look at, say, uh, Chesa Bowden, the, the young uh, prosecutor, yes. uh, elected uh, DA of San Francisco. And, of course, he's a prosecutor who takes the side of the criminals. <laughs> you know, and just the, um, the, uh, the social pathologies that could bloom uh, as these socialists are elected to office are very frightening. Krasner in Philadelphia and Kim Fox in, in uh, Chicago, uh, two more examples financed by George Soros, who uh, in, in part by George Soros as super PACs. I mean, there is this move on the left that's sort of under talked about because we're so focused on Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. But the move on the left to move to a culture of non-prosecution at the local and regional level. Right, and I mean, and that's a sure way to to uh, to get a resurgence of crime in this country, which we're already seeing in, in places like uh, New York City, for example. Um, so it's a multifaceted threat, and it just doesn't go away if Joe Biden is the nominee of the Democratic Party. There needs to be real resources, intellectual resources, devoted to um, basically arguing against socialism, which seems to have a powerful pull for a lot of young people in particular. Uh, Personality-wise, uh, Joe Biden is seen to have an advantage. You know, it's going to be Scranton Joe, likable, smile, um, winsome disposition uh, to the extent that he can keep it together. But uh, Bill McGurn uh, picked up on something that I think more people are picking up on after that confrontation in Michigan. That that uh, And he writes about this in the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Biden's particular weakness has to do with anger, uh, and uh, he's lately been directing most of his anger at ordinary voters. It wasn't just that uh, construction worker in Michigan. And that's not going to um, hold up very well over the course of eight months. No, you don't think it would. Of course, with coronavirus uh, and social distancing, there might be fewer opportunities <laughs> for Biden to display his temper and his kind of uh, you know penchant for making bizarre comments uh, to sometimes his own supporters, you know, um, there was that voter who pledged his support to Biden uh, a few months ago, but then raised an issue of climate change, and Biden told the voter, go vote for someone else. Um, so it is sometimes odd behavior. The, the question is, uh, A, will he, you know, will they kind of hold him in a cell, kind of self, self-quarantine Biden so that people don't notice these um, uh, oddities and quirks? And B, does, you know, really right now, I think what matters most of all is how the public perceives President Trump to be handling the uh, viral outbreak. And with respect to Biden, again, thinking about uh, where the Trump campaign starts to work on him uh, when the uh, when when the country gets past this virus, uh, assuming uh, that it's within the next couple of few months and you've got several months there in the, the presidential cycle. I mean, um, obviously, Trump isn't going to pull punches the way that Bernie Sanders did at Sunday night's debate. So it's going to be a completely different contest. Um, There is no place that Trump won't go. So Joe Biden's competency, Joe Biden's self-dealing as vice president, as documented by Peter Schweitzer, that's all going to be more than fair game. And it is fair game. Um, But I wonder I wonder what the best contrast uh, Trump uh, has the opportunity to present would be. Uh, perhaps it ends up being if the coronavirus subsides and we don't have a real spike in in uh, in serious cases, hospitalizations and deaths that he can present a competency case against Joe Biden or or what's your handle on it? Yeah, I think that's a possibility. Um, and I also think he'll be saying that Biden is a archaic figure. He's a return to the past. And, you know, there are a lot of people who by 2016 were ready for 
the Obama administration to be over, and I don't think they want a return to the same personalities and policies uh, that marked the Obama administration, and that we would see in a Biden administration, and it's just be, it would just be a retread, and there's some danger to that. I mean, I've, I talked about in National Review recently, Biden's three no's uh, during the debate. He said there would be no deportations in the first month of his uh, administration. There'd be no remain in Mexico policy, which had, has done so much to relieve the humanitarian crisis on our southern border. And uh, there would be no loans, or, or rather no tuition for students, which is a pretty left-wing <laughs> left-wing policy. Oh, I'm sorry, no fracking. There'd be no fracking, right. uh, which is a huge issue in a lot of swing states. So I, I'd expect Trump to pounce not only on Biden's past uh, and his self-dealing, but also on the policies. And the policy differences, I think, will be crucial to uh, convincing Trump voters that they need to come out and support their man in November. Well, right. And that no fracking and um, you know beating up on oil company executives just for being oil company executives, that's not going to come off uh, as particularly uh, sound against the backdrop of $30 barrels of oil and, uh, and an economic downturn, if that's what we're looking at. That's right. That's right. He is Matthew Connetti. He's the founding editor of the Free Beacon and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Matthew, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And I got to say, uh, I appreciate the spirit of the Italians in the wake of uh, the devastating impact of the coronavirus spread in uh, northern Italy. The country generally 2000 people, nearly 2000 people have died and the number of infected has soared to nearly 25,000. And we played on yesterday's show uh, some of the sirens of Siena singing uh, down uh, the, the cobblestone corridors of empty streets from their balcony. Well, um, there's been a bit of an upgrade uh, uh, renowned Italian tenor Mauricio Marchini has been serenading the city of Florence. He started uh, the other night with uh, Nessun Dorma, which was, of course, immortalized by Luciano Pavarotti. <laughs> You get the feel for it. Uh, Puccini's great opera, that great aria, and uh, uh, popularized a little bit by uh, Paul Potts, too, because of American Idol, or Britain's Got Talent, actually. Uh, but you get the point. Uh, and uh, Marchini singing again from his balcony, serenading the entire city of Florence, uh, followed up uh, Nessun Dorma with uh, uh, a selection from La Rigoletto uh, from Verde. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, two uh, very famous areas, if you're an opera fan, which I am, that's kind of cool. It's just, again, as I said yesterday, sort of this uh, spirit of endurance, this triumphal nature, and uh, to do it in song with one of the the great uh, tenors of the world in present, reminding us of the great tenors of the world past, like Pavarotti, the three tenors, frankly, uh, uh, Carreras and and Domingo attached to that. Um, So Turandot, uh, Rigoletto, it's a, it's reminiscent almost of like Andy Dufresne from Shawshank, where he plays Marriage of Figaro in the yard and talks about uh, the thing that they can't get, which is hope. Not to get all romantic on you, but it's hard not to when you hear a tenor like uh, Marcini belt those out. And and so for 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 you opera fans, uh, just to yourself, can you name the three riddles of uh, Princess Turandot, Asian princess, no less? In uh, the Puccini, I'll give you in the the, the Puccini opera. I'll give you uh, I'll give you a hint to see if you can remember. I'll do it Jeopardy style. The three answers to the three riddles to gain the hand of Princess Turandot. Uh, let's see if I remember now. Uh, hope, blood, and Turandot. Now see if you can put together those riddles. This is the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Let's move from statistics to stories. Tell a couple of stories here, or recount a couple of stories that were told thanks to good reporting. One piece in the Wall Street Journal, the other an op-ed at Business Insider. Wall Street Journal, Jennifer Levitz reporting on Mark Thibault, who is one of the first coronavirus patients, uh, one of the first infections, only 40 years old and uh, came within an inch of death. He uh, was one of the the first Americans diagnosed, as I I said, gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal, speaking from the time of the interview, the IC unit at Providence Hospital in Rhode Island, where he'd been for 13 days. I was one inch from death. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. He actually had last rites read to him. Well, we've talked about, and you know, 80% of COVID cases tend to be mild or moderate, and more than 62,000 people globally have recovered. Older people or those with underlying health conditions are at higher risk, and even though Thebalt was only 48, had asthma. He uh, went on a trip to Italy, a school trip. Two others from the trip also tested positive. He's a married father of two. He's the vice principal of student life at St. Raphael Academy, a private Catholic school in Pawtucket, a suburb of Providence. And so, you know, he started feeling bad, got, stayed home from work, got worse, growing fatigue, dry cough, something that re- resembled bronchitis, went to the hospital, but was told he didn't meet the criteria for the test initially. Uh, doctors uh, were concerned. He got a call from the Rhode Island Department of Public Health, who told him, uh, which uh, that department told him to get uh, tested immediately. Did tested positive. So the virus uh, by that time it hit him like a hurricane. Weak, trouble breathing, was admitted to ICU. The nurses donning hazmat style suits entered his room and intubated him, so on and so forth. Uh, he ultimately comes out the other side. But his point is, he is worried some people don't realize how serious it can be, and hopes people are taking the recommended safety steps from washing hands to staying home when sick. 
It almost killed me. It's alarming when I hear people minimize it as a simple cold. It was no simple cold for me. And that's fair, but it is a simple cold for a lot of people. Another story, this is going back in time to uh, the uh, swine flu, H1N1, from 2009 that we discussed previously. Caroline Ronsich, uh, you have swine flu were the words in 2009 that would have struck fear into pretty much any American. I was diagnosed with the illness as a 16-year-old high school sophomore in June of that year. And uh, she talks about spending a week quarantined in her bedroom with severe symptoms like vomiting, sore throat, high fever. Mom and dad were told by their offices not to come into work for fear of spreading the illness to colleagues. Uh, and uh, luckily her parents did, and, her, and her sibling didn't get sick. But so the same sort of protocol you're hearing today. She writes, I'm, of course, lucky to have survived a virus. The CDC estimates kill nearly 13,000 people between 150 and 600,000 people globally. 13,000 in the U.S. But I'm by no means alone. The CDC also estimates there were 61 million cases of swine flu in the U.S. between April 12th of 2009 and uh, April 10th of 2010. By comparison, the coronavirus uh, is more deadly than the swine flu at this point. While it would be remiss to downplay the severity of an illness like swine flu or the coronavirus, it is worth talking about the vast numbers of people who get sick, get treatment, and move on with their lives. You know, just the full picture rather than half the picture. And she says the same thing really as T-Bolt. So it's sort of interesting, you know, they both survived. Uh, One, though, came very close to death. She writes, like millions of others, I recover from swine flu. The experience taught me a lot. Most important, I learned to seek out reliable information from trusted sources and not to panic. For more on all of this, uh, some historical perspective, we're pleased to be joined by Clark Welton. He's a contributor to City Journal, former speechwriter for New York City Mayor's Ed Koch, and Rudy Giuliani. Clark, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. How are you? Good. Uh, your piece in the City Journal was good because you give us uh, some historical perspective just from the life you've lived and the eras you've been through and all the viruses attendant to those various eras. You know, as somebody who, as according to your piece, is in their 80s uh, and so is, uh, you know, vulnerable uh, with respect to coronavirus. What's your perspective on all of this, the stories that you're hearing and the stories that you've experienced? Well, I think I actually had the uh, what was called the Asian flu back in 1957. I know that's a long time ago, and I'm, I am an old guy, and uh, I am uh, you know, uh, targeted by, uh, um, by the uh, coronavirus. But um, the whole experience today, although I have been through earlier uh, flu epidemics, uh, seems strange because of the way uh, we're responding. I don't recall America responding uh, earlier uh, the way we uh, are, re- are responding now, uh, shutting down the St. Patrick's Day parade, um, closing schools. Uh, that's not the way it happened in 1957. And the Asian flu, as it was called then, was very dangerous. It uh, killed uh, somewhere between one and two million people worldwide. So um, it was not to be... Uh, I trifled with. It was a dangerous flu. I I had it. I was very, very sick. But uh, my uh, college campus did not shut down, and uh, neither did the surrounding town. Uh, Life went on. It's so interesting because as you track uh, these viral outbreaks, say, over the last 60 years, going back to the Asian flu in 1957, um, it it seems like the response you're describing was more or less the response all the way up until uh, the... uh, swine flu that uh, that young lady was writing about in, in the Business Insider who got it when she was 16. And and in 2009, you know, we lived through 2009. And 
I don't remember anything on the order of the response that we're seeing here, even though that was uh, at least uh, as we stand here today, much more deadly and uh, infected tens of millions of more people. And so I just it, it seems like it was sort of one protocol for 50 years and then a switch was flipped in the last decade. Right. I agree. It was. And um, I, I think it's partly because we simply aren't accustomed uh, as a uh, uh, as a society, as a nation to uh, dealing with the disease uh, in our younger years. It's, uh, we have vaccines today. Uh, young children, uh, fortunately, it's a, it's a good thing. I think uh, don't have to worry about polio, polio anymore. They don't have to worry about measles and mumps for the most part. They they sometimes come back these diseases, but um, we have uh, we have become uh, complacent to a certain extent about disease. And when a disease hits like this one, you know, a disease you can't do anything about politically. You can't you can't uh, call it incorrect. You can't browbeat it. You can't you can't. Uh, yell at it. You can't shame it. You have to. You have to face it. And uh, there's a certain danger involved for everyone. I'm following the uh, the, the guidelines. I'm uh, washing my hands. I um, I'm staying indoors for the most part, uh, and I'm hoping for the best. I'm saying my prayers and uh, taking my chances. Yeah, I pray to uh, Saint Corona. In addition to Saint Anthony and uh, Saint uh, Saint Anthony the Great and Saint Edmund, there's a Saint Corona, and she no, I she, didn't know that. <laughs> she died in north no. uh, in in northern Italy. She, along with Saint Anthony the Great and Saint Edmund, are seen as the patron saints of uh, you know disease, infectious disease, and pandemics and so forth. So there you go, Saint Corona, pray for us and uh, pray for uh, Clark Walton, our friend as well there in New York. I want to ask you about uh, the current uh, mayor of New York, since uh, you were speechwriter for two of the previous ones. Right. <laughs> Bill de Blasio over the weekend on MSNBC suggested that we nationalize, we start nationalizing industries. Uh, We nationalize any industries that can produce uh, masks or hand sanitizer, for example. Um, uh, You know, Harry Truman tried that in World War II and uh, uh, the Supreme Court thankfully interceded. Uh, are you surprised to hear something like that from a politician at this juncture? Um, well, political political solutions are are not the answer. You have to mobilize uh, the uh, the energies and the um, uh, the uh, um, what would you call it? the innovative powers of the human mind. Mm. That doesn't require uh, uh, nationalization or uh, anything of the sort. It requires people uh, put their imaginations and their energies to work on behalf of the entire nation and behalf of the entire world in this case. So, yeah. no, I'm, a, I'm, yeah. I'm absolutely against that. Yeah. Uh, He's got some Ortegan uh, tendencies, that uh, that mayor of New York you've got now, yeah, it seems. Well, I'm, I don't want to get into a fight with Bill de Blasio. No, but, it's uh, all right. No, I'll, I'll yeah. for you. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, okay. a, um, it, it's, it's This is not a time to, uh, for, for uh, political posturing. Uh, it's, a, it's a time for... Um, uh, doing the job each one of us has, which is to uh, stay healthy and, and look out for each other, too. This is not a case of uh, everybody uh, just uh, trying to stay isolated, trying to social distance from your neighbor and so forth. Watch out for your neighbors. Keep an eye on them, too. Um, yeah, this is how we got to where we are today as a country. by uh, We're working together, and uh, that's how we'll get through this, too. All right. He is Clark Walton. He's a contributor to City Journal. And I will uh, tweet out at Dan Proft his piece, say your prayers and take your chances. 
He's also a former speechwriter for New York City Mayors Ed Koch and Rudy Giuliani. Clark Walton, thanks so much for joining us, and stay safe. We appreciate it. Dan, be well. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show as we uh, peruse the globe look again how other countries are responding to the spread of the coronavirus uh, we uh, stop at Canada, Justin Trudeau making an announcement yesterday regarding border closure. First, we will be denying entry to Canada to people who are not Canadian citizens or permanent residents. This measure will carve out some designated exceptions, including for air crews, diplomats, immediate family members of Canadian citizens, and at this time, U.S. citizens. At this time, U.S. citizens exempt, but you know that can change depending on how well a country contains the outbreak. So, for example, when President Trump announced the uh, restrictions on EU countries, he initially exempted the UK and Ireland. Then you saw a spike in cases in England and the UK and Ireland were put on the restrictions list. So that can change, but that's where it's at for now. More on the topic. We're pleased to be joined by Colby Kosh, who is a columnist for the National Post. Colby, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. Special greetings to Chicago from Edmonton, Alberta. No, oh, there you go. Well, yeah, I'm interested in uh, the decision by Justin Trudeau announced yesterday on the, the border restrictions, the travel restrictions, and then sort of uh, what your assessment is at how the uh, Trudeau administration has been uh, dealing with the uh, coronavirus outbreak and maybe a comparison contrast from uh, the neighbors to uh, yourself. My take on that uh, is kind of tangential to a lot of people's. Um, my attitude towards this crisis has always been that both our countries are federations. Mm. And really, a lot of the action is going to be on the state level, on your side, and on the provincial level uh, up here. So people have the instinct always to look to the highest level of government, the big leader, for answers about this stuff. And in terms of, you know, obviously in terms of international borders and things like that, that's sort of restricting travel, obviously the federal governments are important. But sort of from day to day, I'm keeping more of a a close eye on the provincial governments. As far as the federal government's performance goes, there's a feeling that they were very late to act on the border. The international uh, airports were open for probably a few days longer than uh, people were comfortable with. We had, you know, our, our, our federal politicians were insisting that uh, we, we had good screening measures in place, and the people who were passing through these airports knew better. You know, there was a single-touch screen that sort of asked you uh, what countries you'd been to, and that was about it. We didn't have the sort of policing that you've seen elsewhere where people are doing more active screening, more active interrogation of passengers, and, uh, you know, scanning them for fever and such. Yeah, and uh, so let's con- continue the the sort of federalist comparison, uh, state governments to provincial governments we see in, mm. in uh, America – a very different response right now from uh, some big city mayors uh, like in New York and Chicago and L.A. in San Francisco. Now that's even even a more severe response with a with a complete shutdown. The state of Pennsylvania, a complete shutdown. 
Uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, you know, is expressing no interest whatsoever in quarantine in any particular city, but he is uh, sort of openly ruminating about uh, more stringent measures in New York. And this is uh, still with a relevant uh, with a relative small number of cases. And again, not to be cavalier, but a small number of deaths uh, within those cases as well. And I just Mm -hmm. wonder how some of the provincial governments in Canada are responding similarly or differently than some of our big city mayors and big state governors? It's another case of the uh, news cycle moving fast. What we've seen just literally this morning, just uh, a couple hours ago, uh, you know, the the big hotspot, I think, here, the big hotspots are on the West Coast, uh, where Vancouver is opposite Washington State, and in Toronto, obviously, which is facing Buffalo and Rochester and is a city of uh, 5 million people or whatever it is. So the situation in Ontario is of particular interest, and the government of Ontario spent the spent the weekend and yesterday saying, well, we're not going to do a very strong shutdown. We're not going to shut down the province. This morning, they did invoke province-wide emergency powers. Now, it's not a total shutdown. It's not quite as radical as you're seeing in some of the U.S. states that are hardest hit, but it is a recipe for social distancing, uh, shutdown of daycares, shutdown of most businesses other than the so-called essential ones, uh, meaning that uh, grocery stores will be open and other things for the moment, but bars and restaurants are going to shut down except for takeout and delivery. So in the case of Ontario, a couple days behind some of the uh, state situations that your viewers will be familiar with, but more or less, you know, playing catch up real fast. And it was quite this, the news conference this morning uh, was not really expected. It was uh, they came out of the gate very early in the morning as people in Ontario were commuting. And it was a bit of a surprise, but they're taking tougher measures there. You're seeing similarly tough measures elsewhere, particularly Calgary, which is here in Alberta out west. Um, any place where there's been a lot of international travel, any place that's sort of a, an air hub for people to come and go, uh, these are the places that are acting first. Uh, Edmonton is a little bit more out of the way. We're probably a few days behind, but I can foresee the same sorts of measures happening here. Uh, you write in uh, one of your columns in the National Post that uh, our physiological dif- uh, defenses against viral infections are, for now, very much like our ancestors, though things might be a little different on that count in 20 years or so. What about our psychological responses? Because we've seen in this country, and I'm sure you've seen, Gosh, a very different response. It's a very different attitude towards this outbreak as compared to, frankly, any other viral outbreak in the last 50 years. And even most recently, the uh, H1N1 swine flu from a little over a decade ago. And there's just that the, this is not unprecedented territory in terms of a viral outbreak, even though this virus is novel. But it very much is in terms of the political and public response. And I wonder if you're seeing similarly in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not like anything else that we're that most of us will be familiar with uh, within our lifetimes. So really, the best analog is probably the Spanish flu. Now we're all hoping we're going to get away a lot easier than they did because that the Spanish uh, flu of uh, 1919 and 1920 killed about one percent of the people on this continent at the time. I mean that was that was a really extraordinary situation, and really there's no you know, it's it's unimaginable to think of what that was like. And in fact, they sort of, you know, we are relearning from that experience some of the social measures we're taking now to try and limit uh, the infectivity of the virus, the, reproduct- the reproduction rate of uh, of of the uh, uh, of the infections. Uh, so, you know, you're really you're really looking at a hundred year event. We're looking back 
almost exactly 100 years. And it's a, it's a challenge of a similar scale. It's something that if it were truly uncontrolled, like everyone else is saying, you know, I really have nothing to, nothing clever to add to it. Yeah. Our intensive care units would be overwhelmed pretty quickly. Our hospitals would be overwhelmed very quickly. And we'd be seeing the kind of triage measures that they're taking that we're hearing about in Italy, where doctors are honestly saying, you know, uh, here's a group of eight older patients, and seven of them cannot receive ventilation care. Seven of them are going to be left to die in isolation. Uh, so that's what we're all trying to avoid, and it's uh, a little frightening and hair-raising, and, uh, you know, you, we just have to hope that we'll all adapt. I'm not somebody who believes in the sort of Monsters of Maple Street scenario where uh, society collapses and we're, <laughs> we're all expressing uh, violence against each other. I believe in the general benignity of the populations, both here and in the U.S., and I'll say I'm hoping the U.S. comes over the top with the same kind of effort that... Uh, it brought to uh, fighting the Second World War. Canadians always think, yeah, they came in late, but they were sure useful once they showed up. Yeah, it's uh, it's only Lord of the Flies here with respect to toilet paper. So if we could keep it contained to that, <laughs> I think I think we may be okay. He is uh, Colby Kosh. He's a columnist for the National Post. Colby, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I want to get back to uh, the highlights from the president's Corona Task Force briefing this morning. But before I do, it's just worth noting the uh, unintended consequences of... uh, Terrible public policy rooted completely in sentiment. Uh, I'm talking about plastic bag bans, very popular among the climate alarmist set that have taken hold around the country or taxes on using plastic bags like in Chicago to discourage their use and also, of course, provide a revenue stream to the rapacious government in question. Plastic bags. Wall Street Journal opining on this. New York environmentalists have terrible timing. The statewide ban on single-use plastic bags took effect March 1, the same day New York confirmed its first case of coronavirus. To protect the public, officials in the Empire State and elsewhere should immediately suspend their plastic bag bans, argues the journal's editorial board. Why? Because, as was known at the time of these bans, as was argued at the time of these bans or tax increases, reusable shopping bags may harbor the virus, not wasn't known specifically the coronavirus, of course, but the idea that it could harbor germs, the reusable shopping bags, microbes. Reusable shopping bags may harbor the uh, virus and could facilitate its spread in grocery stores and pharmacies that remain open, even as workplaces, schools, and restaurants shutter. Researchers at the University of Arizona and Loma Linda University surveyed grocery shoppers, randomly tested their reusable bags. This uh, 2012 study that was... uh, done by researchers at these institutions of higher learning and funded part by the American Chemistry Council. Large numbers of bacteria were found in almost all bags and coliform bacteria in half. Right, because despite the guidance that, you know, wash your reusable bags, many shoppers, in fact, the majority of shoppers, said they rarely or never wash them, according to this study from eight years ago. Our friend over at City Journal, John Tierney, who's been writing about... uh, these uh, 
self-congratulatory environmental policies that have deleterious consequences for public health and economic health and common sense generally. He uh, writes in the City Journal about this. He's been writing about this for decades. The uh, COVID-19 outbreak is giving new meaning to those sustainable, quote-unquote, shopping bags that politicians and environments, environmentalists have been so eager to impose on the public. Uh, researchers, again, he notes, like the journal did, warning for years about the risks of these bags, the reusable bags, spreading deadly viral and bacterial diseases. But, of course, public officials ignored their concerns because they were in the process of saving humanity by eliminating the single-use plastic bags, right? Plastic bad, despite their obvious advantages in reducing the spread of pathogens, which public health officials knew throughout the course of these debates that were ultimately won in so many places by the uh, environmental alarmists, uh, as was the as has been the case in New York State, the timing too, the irony of the timing, March one, the first New York case. Tyranny goes on to point out the study published in the Journal of Environmental Health that was referenced by the editorial, the Wall Street Journal editorial. He also uh, references a 2012 study. Researchers analyzed the effects of San Francisco's ban on single-use plastic grocery bags by comparing emergency room admissions in the city against those of nearby counties without the bag ban. The researchers from University of Pennsylvania and George Mason reported a 25% increase in bacteria-related illnesses and deaths in San Francisco relative to the other counties where there weren't uh, that did not have the ban on single-use plastic bags. The uh, San Francisco's City Department of Health, uh, otherwise uh, dealing with the poopocalypse, said uh, they disputed the findings and the methodology, but acknowledged nonetheless that, quote, the idea that widespread use of reusable bags may cause gastrointestinal infections if they're not regularly cleaned is plausible. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. So they dispute the findings and the methodology, but concede the underlying scientific reality. So how was how were these bans? or policies aimed at discouraging and encouraging the use of these reusable cloth bags. How are they the smart choice for public health? As Tyranny writes, anyone who studied consumer behavior knows it's, a hope, it's hopelessly unrealistic to expect people to follow all the steps, the cleaning and so on and so forth, and how you should segregate different foods and goods into different bags and packaged meat and fish and poultry and small disposable plastic bags inside their tote bags and so on and so forth. Not going to happen. If the Department of Health actually prioritized public health rights tyranny, it would acknowledge what food manufacturers and grocers have known for decades. Disposable plastic is the cheapest, simplest, and safest way to prevent foodborne illnesses. Or, in the coronavirus world in which we live in today, to prevent the spread of contagious infections that can li- uh, live for days on a surface, a hard surface, or on a reusable cloth grocery bag. The consequences of legislating based on feeling and hysteria as opposed to science. From the party of science, by the way, right? This is the Dan Project. This is the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Proctor. I want to return to uh, the highlights from the president's briefing this morning with his uh, public health professionals, the vice president, the treasury secretary. But first, this piece in Daily Wire by a uh, friend of the show, Andrew Clavin, as uh, he takes up this argument being made by the left that everyone's a socialist in a pandemic. This was uh, what the New York Times op-ed writer Farad Manju wrote. Companies and lawmakers are suddenly realizing the value of a strong safety net. Let's hope they don't forget when the crisis passes, writes Mr. Manju in support of socialism. But Clavin writes, no, let's hope they do forget. A crisis taps into the skills of experts and authorities in the same way a toothache taps into the skills of dentists. But just because you need a filling doesn't mean the dentist should run your life. (laughs) I like the metaphor. In normal times, experts and authorities can be the biggest buffoons of all. Haven't we seen that? Indeed. What was uh, President Trump's election in 2016 a response to? In part, it was a response to the technocracy, all those experts in charge of all these civil institutions that uh, were wrong about so many things and uh, wrong about so many things in a way that that hurt ordinary American families playing by the rules that they set who were seeing their economic prospects diminished, their quality of life diminished, and uh, being lectured to endlessly by the experts while their decisions were negatively impacting their families. Clavin goes on, in normal times, they don't know what they don't know and they can't do what they think they can. They gum up the works with an excess of caution. Wash your hands every time you pet a dog. Wear a helmet when you jog. They drastically underestimate the extent and use of their expertise. Don't we see this all the time? I'm successful in one space or particularly knowledgeable about one sector. So that means I can be knowledgeable and successful in every space. This is the vanity of the rich guy businessman who thinks he can just walk out of a corporate boardroom and into public office. In point of fact, uh, those are the exceptions, the people who can do what, say, President Trump did. That's never been done before. That's how much of an exception it is. It's not the rule. The rule is a lot of those self-funders, as we saw with Bloomberg, but even more pronounced, who've never won public office despite spending millions and millions of dollars, the political graveyard littered with those people. The more common occurrence is somebody that's wildly successful in business in some form or fashion thinks that they're uh, Winston Churchill and can just walk into the political arena, not understanding any dynamics, not knowing the personnel, uh, not being prepared to uh, uh, have to genuflect before the voters and before other political players, as opposed to just dictate as they're used to doing in executive positions in the business world, for example. Very different. Uh, So getting back to what Clavin had to say. In normal times, individual creators driven by normal human motives like curiosity, greed even, decency and glory, people like the Wright brothers, Bill Gates, are more likely to change the world for the better than massive sclerotic bureaucracies with their five-year plans to steal your money and produce nothing. One of the reasons Trump's America First agenda has worked so well is because it's simple enough for the government to put in practice. Guys like Obama who think they can play three-dimensional chess with the whole planet make a mess out of everything, and indeed he did. Guys like Trump who just want to clean up the neighborhood have taken on as much gov- as much as government can handle. So... Let's let this crisis go to waste. Let the government have its day. And when this is over, put that power hungry sucker right back in the constitutional box where it belongs. I think that's really well said by Clavin, as you would expect, being the celebrated screenwriter, author, podcaster that he is. Uh, But even more than being well said, it's the right position to take. And so 
Uh, no, we're not all socialists now, even though we recognize this uh, force majeure event of a virus requires evasive action of a public health nature, and that necessarily requires government, as well as it does government as the backstop for particular industries that are uh, integral to our national security because they're inextricably tied to our economic security, like the airlines. And so you can understand why President Trump talked about uh, this uh, $850 billion stimulus package that the White House is moving today uh, that uh, Mnuchin's Treasury Secretary is discussing with Senate Republicans to put something together to get money into Americans' hands to try to quell some of the economic anxiety as they simultaneously run parallel tracks on public health from uh, testing to promulgating guidelines to, uh, to to gathering data to inform the modeling that's being done. President Trump on the uh, Senate aid package. Today, the Senate has taken up coronavirus legislation that includes free testing for those who need it, as well as paid sick leave and family medical leave for workers affected by the virus. We're also committed to getting small businesses the support that they need. In fact, one of the uh, things we talked about with the fast food operations, we spoke to the uh, chairman and CEOs of all of the companies, but one of the things we discussed is exactly that, getting small businesses support and flexibility that they need for themselves and for their workers, and that's being worked on right now. At my direction, Secretary Mnuchin is meeting today with senators on additional stimulus packages. I can tell you he's meeting with them late until the night last night and uh, for a big part of the day yesterday. And Mnuchin uh, addressed some of what uh, he and the president had discussed and what uh, their uh, agenda is with respect to any package that would get to the president's desk. When you say a stimulus package for American workers, do you mean direct payments to Americans, or are you talking about a payroll tax holiday? Um, although the president likes the idea of the payroll tax holiday, I will tell you what we've heard from many people, and the president has said we can consider this. The payroll tax holiday would get people money over the next six to eight months. We're looking at sending checks to Americans immediately. And what we've heard from hardworking Americans, many companies have now shut down, whether it's bars or restaurants. Americans need cash now, and the president wants to get cash now. And And, uh, not specific about the amount or the uh, level at which, uh, you know, the income level at which the checks would would, uh, be limited. But that's going to be in discussion with Senate Republicans. Mnuchin also back the president's backstop of the airlines. I've had discussions with all the airline CEOs this week. Um, The airline CEOs have had conversations with the Senate and the House. As the president said, I was up with a subset of the Republican senators last night. I've discussed that with them. I think, as you know, this is worse than 9-11. For the airline industry, this is, uh, they, they are almost ground to a halt. The president wants to make sure that although We don't want people to travel unless it's critical. We want to maintain for critical travel the right to have domestic travel. And so we're looking at a bailout or a backstopping of the airlines uh, on the order of 3x what uh, was provided uh, during or after 9-11, in part because the economics uh, of the airlines warranted, as Mnuchin described. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I wanted to close the show by updating you on the story we reported yesterday. This uh, Matt Colvin from uh, Hickson, Tennessee, uh, he and his brother uh, trying to corner the marketplace on hand sanitizer, going around to uh, uh, superstores as well as uh, uh, little local mom and pa's picking up a total of 17,700 bottles of hand sanitizer uh, to sell them on eBay and Amazon. They started out selling between like uh, 12 and 80 bucks before people complained. Amazon and eBay shut them down, and he was left with a stockpile of nearly 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. Uh, and uh, I mean, amazed. This is just amazing. Officials from the Tennessee Attorney General's office said that uh, they took uh, a third of the bacterial, the hand sanitizers, the uh, bacterial supplies that uh, he and his brother had uh, bought. And uh, Colvin ultimately donated the other two-thirds, uh, one to a local church, and the other supplies were heading to Kentucky where he had cleared store shelves of the goods in, I don't know, in, in parts of Kentucky, apparently. And this is after the Attorney General's office in Tennessee started investigating Colvin under uh, the Tennessee's uh, price gouging laws, which prohibits grossly excessive, quote-unquote, profits for a variety of items, including food, gas, and medical supplies. State can fine people up to $1,000 for a violation. So uh, as we talked about yesterday, this is not price gouging. There's no such thing as price gouging. Market clearing price. He took the initiative to arbitrage hand sanitizer. And, you know, just to compare and contrast before you jump on the bandwagon of uh, economic illiterates keeping scorn on Colvin. I mean, he was getting death threats. Uh, one email he shared with The New York Times, your behavior is probably going to end up with someone killing you and your wife and your children. I mean, again, the panic that leads to hysteria, that leads to barbarism uh, and the ignorance from which all of it stems. Just ridiculous. So Colvin's a bad guy, right? But Bill de Blasio on with uh, Joy Reid on MSNBC over the weekend, calling for the nationalization of uh, property, the nationalization of businesses who are in the business of making hand sanitizer or making those masks. Listen, there should be a national approach to ensuring max every every factory that can make hand sanitizer yeah. should be on 24 seven shifts. And the distribution should be go to the places that need it most. Yeah. De Blasio, de Blasio and or the outsourcing to the federal government should just take somebody's business if they're in the hand sanitizer business or the ventilator business or the mass and uh, usurp it and run 24 seven shifts uh, stealing people's property. That's 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 I don't even have even said that seen that covered anywhere. That's no big deal. But this guy Colvin from Hicks in Tennessee is public enemy number one. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it's embarrassing that the mayor of a major city in America would go full Hugo Chavez slash Daniel Ortega on us. But what do you expect from de Blasio? Have a good uh, day. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.